word why. What a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. The key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Well, I will tell you that um, I'm very uh, lucky in the world that I uh, live in, in media and the opportunity to tell stories about really compelling people, organizations, projects. Uh, and today is absolutely in that vein. I'm very uh, much looking forward to this. I think personally, even more than just from a let's do a podcast perspective, but we're going to be spending time with the president and CEO of Goodwill Industries International. And that's Steve Preston. Prior to joining uh, Goodwill Industries International, uh, Steve held leadership positions in the public and private sectors. He served as Secretary of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, better known as HUD, and as the Administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration, leading both federal agencies during times of national crisis. He has orchestrated successful turnarounds as the CEO of two private corporations, Oakleaf Global Holdings and Livingston International. He was also the CFO of two Fortune 500 companies, during times of significant change and restructuring for each company. He's a member of Fast Company's Impact Council. He's also been featured in the Associated Press, Forbes, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, as you might imagine. Um, you're a very, very big guy, uh, busy guy, I should say, Steve. Uh, where did this sense of purpose start for you? Was this early on? Was this pre-Northwestern? Um, I'm a guy who originally came from Detroit, lived in Chicago. Northwestern, of, of course, is a globally known uh, uh, institution of, of of excellence uh, to the nth degree. So wh where did this sense of purpose come from for you? Yeah, um, I think it probably happened fairly early on, but it uh, certainly over the course of my life, it took shape and meaning and ultimately uh, a professional direction. I'm a person of uh, a very deep faith. I think a lot about my life and my impact in the context of that. And I think one of the um, clearest uh, callings uh, of my faith is to serve the poor and to serve people in need and to be uh, and to think of everybody uh, as having inherent dignity uh, and purpose in life. And uh, that's a very strong grounding for me. And it really is. Um, it shapes my view of the world very, very powerfully. So that would tell me that you are, uh, I say this as someone who I think of myself in the same way, but an empath. I mean, your ability to feel others in their situations. Is that something that you you rely on even outside of your education, your professional experiences? It's just sort of that that gut reaction of being able to understand yeah. or, or at least attempt to understand what someone else might be going through that doesn't live your life, that may not have resources or experiences in the same way. It's always been that way for you? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's uh, it's sort of been born out of my path. Uh, my parents both grew up very poor. My father grew up in Appalachia. He uh, didn't. He had. He, he left high school in tenth grade. Um, his. He was the ninth of eleven kids. He grew up in a coal mining camp, uh, and he went to work in foundries. And um, you know, went through real life raising five kids with you know less than a high school education. And uh, and uh, I would say we didn't have much, but we knew it was a lot worse <laughs> where he'd come from. And my mother grew up in World War II uh, in Germany and uh, as a child saw what was happening in that society and her the town she grew up with, uh, in was destroyed and, and they lived 
uh, in poverty after the war and they were hungry. And um, and then when I was a uh, you know a very young banker in, in New York City um, uh, as a single guy, I spent my weekends working with kids uh, in very difficult parts of the city. And um, grew up in a big family, had tons of cousins, always loved kids. And I just wanted to spend time with kids when I was at that age. And I saw their lives and it um, and I saw the pathways uh, that they were potentially on. Uh, and then later in life, when I when I went to HUD, which is, you know, obviously the agency in the federal government that probably does most in the poverty realm, I felt like I saw what happened to a lot of those kids who didn't find a way out of those circumstances and, and, and ended up in a, a situation that just perpetuated. And increasingly, I, I, I focused my philanthropic efforts, my volunteer efforts in working with adults who needed a different path forward in life. And I firmly believe that there are just millions of people that are stuck in a place based on their histories, their circumstances, the decisions they've made, who with the right kind of support could be on a fundamentally different trajectory. And unless we are there to support them, that won't change, right? But there's so much value in helping people change that. And so, you know, my I guess my convictions are born both uh, out of my history and what I've experienced in life and, and, and what I believe is true about the potential of every individual. We do, we do share some commonalities. My my late father grew up in Germany during World War II, so I would imagine oh. we could have some very interesting conversations outside oh, yeah. of the one we're having today. So you touched on something there, which I think is interesting. And I'm curious, you know, look, everyone will say, was there, was there one moment, Steve, that sort of changed your understanding of hope or inspiration? But, you know, if you look at the numbers, right, and you play the numbers, you say, well, I don't know if a Steve Preston is going to out of five kids and where you grew up and sort of the background – is he going to aspire to something as big as sort of the path that was laid before you? Was there a moment? And I think when we when we think about people that are needing some support, right? I always think back to my mental health days and working with individuals where hope was, uh, it felt like it was always just past an arm's length away. And you wanted to find different ways to help structure that so that people could again feel hope and feel inspired and connected and engaged. Talk about sort of, there had to be something in your rearing when you were young that made you think beyond the longitude and latitude that you sort of called home. Yeah. Well, I, I always felt like there was something bigger out there for me. And I always felt that, and I didn't really know what it was or how to go after it, but I was very interested in, in a much bigger world. And I really wanted to engage in that somehow. And I thought somehow I would go to work for an NGO or, you know, something in the world and I decided to major in international relations. And I think probably the biggest thing was, you know, I grew up 100 miles away from Northwestern University, uh, but I didn't even know it was there. I didn't even know what it was. And uh, I was looking at colleges and my counselors were kind of, you know, directing me to things that were very local because that's what they understood. And I got a I got a card from Northwestern. And I went to the guidance counselor's office and I looked it up, Northwestern up in the Barron's Guide. And I thought, oh, <laughs> this is interesting. <laughs> this is interesting. These guys like are in a really high category. And I really, you know, and 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 I didn't really know anything about colleges. Uh, so I went down there and I interviewed and the guy said, um, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but you're going to get in because I, you know, I was a good student. I had good scores. I had done all, all the things you're supposed to do. And when I got it to school, it was like, I don't know who these people are. Culture this, shock? It was, it was 
they came from different places. Their parents did things. You go to their houses, they looked very different. Um, and I was a Pell Grant kid. I was I was financial aid. I worked in the summers. I worked in a, you know, and and so um, it made me realize that there's just this fundamentally different place out there. And I did well, and I got you know I, I you know after business after college, a, a company in Chicago, you know sent said, if you come here, we'll send you to University of Chicago for your MBA. And I did that right after college. And by the time I was 25, right after my birthday, I was starting out at Lehman Brothers on Wall Street and sort of saying, I was, um, I had this remarkable perch at the same time that my father was unemployed uh, and couldn't find work and his healthcare was, was, had expired. And I just saw this just massive gap between where I was from and where I was going, which was actually very difficult for me to reconcile. Uh, I was going to say, how do you how do you do that and maintain a sense of who you are without? I mean, it feels like a delicate balance, right? I mean, of course, a parent wants their child to do well, yeah. Um, but yet, you're doing well kind of puts the perspective of what your dad was going through even in brighter lights or under brighter lights. Yeah. So, so, you know, my, I, I grew up with wonderful parents. They're very loving, very committed to us uh, and wanted everything good for us and wanted much better for us than what they had experienced in life. So that was never uh, an issue uh, from their perspective. Although when, it, when there was an opportunity for me to support them, um, that was, that was complicated. And, and, um, uh, but I also realized um that I needed to be a good steward of what I had. I needed to invest myself in that pathway to um, uh, to make the most of it and to have the impact that I wanted to in life. And I was at a point where I didn't really know where it was going, but I knew I was learning so much. I was building skills. I was, as a 25-year-old working at a big Wall Street firm, you're just in places, in situations, and in decision-making rooms that it, you know, it's just astounding what you're what you're exposed to at a very early age. And so I kind of just uh, at the same time I was burgeoning kind of professionally and learning. I was also at the same time living in New York at a time when New York was not an easy place to live. Right. It was, you know, sort of the mid 80s. A uh, lot of crime. Most people personally experienced crime. It was filthy. You saw a lot of things on the street. And there was, you know, beyond my family, there was just this extremely powerful juxtaposition between, you know, life with people on Wall Street and life on the streets of the city. And, you know, you can choose to look away from that or you can choose to say, um, like, these are these are my neighbors. These are people just like me. It's just that they have in many ways. Um, and and so what you know the, one of one of the things that happened by my work with inter, with with kids in these difficult neighborhoods is I became very close to some of them and one in particular I ultimately took in to live with me because he had a very difficult home situation and I said well hey I can do this <laughs> come live with me <laughs> and talk to his mother and, and like we worked out something and I began to hear his story and not only his story about not in terms of sort of historical facts, but his story of how the world worked, how he saw me, how he believed that because I looked the way I did, I had everything given to me and he had nothing, right? And the stories about how to um, succeed every day uh, in his in his neighborhood, which often involved fighting and, and winning. Um, 
for his suspicions about other people um, and how ultimately by my caring for him consistently and reliably, uh, he developed a strong attachment to me. Uh, and so it helped me understand. And vice versa, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he's he's, you know, his his, you know, kids today look at us as they're kind of quasi grandparents and. <laughs> He's now married with two daughters and he's got an accounting degree and, you know, it, it, it's been a huge success story. <laughs> um, but um, it helped me realize how deeply shaped we are by our circumstances and our pathways and um, how, how helping people disentangle from that um, to see a bigger world and a bigger set of opportunities can be absolutely life-changing. And um, and even though I've had many experiences over the years, those experiences, you know, probably, you know, 35 or more years ago, um, I think in some way shaped me most deeply because it, it, it got me deep into the individual condition, the circumstances that people live within and, 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 and um, how they need to negotiate their way through the world every day, which is very different from me. How did you learn to balance that that sense of connection? Uh, I'll, I'll give some context. Uh, I think it was last year I interviewed the founder of the Bills Mafia, connected to the Buffalo Bills and the charity that that is the Bills Mafia, where if let's say someone's uh, a child is suffering from cancer, that they'll work on a custom T-shirt and then sell that, and the proceeds go to the family. And mm. and the founder is a really thoughtful guy who kind of didn't realize what he was building when he was building it, and quickly realized that wow, if we can make an impact on one family, what if yeah. we stay up a little bit later and work on another shirt and another shirt? And they have helped countless families across the globe. Um, yeah. And you could see it in his face that it's something that is a personal, very personal mm -hmm. struggle. And it's the kind of thing when you lay your head down at night that you can't, it's hard to communicate, but it's that feeling of you can walk around town and feel the need but you also know you can't take in sort of every young person that ends up with an accounting degree and married with two kids yeah. and that it's this sort of personal, um, it's almost like a mental exercise or an emotional exercise to get yourself to the point where you can sense it, but it doesn't also take you down because it's, it's almost like uh, paralysis by analysis, right? You're, mm -hmm. you're struggling to be able to understand that and make it sort of work within your life. Did you find that you had to do a little bit of that? Because I'm not sure that everybody has that vision or that radar yeah. that you have to be able to, you know, to detect that and then do something about it. Yeah. I, I, you know, there is a balance between feeling deeply for the condition of people who suffer and um, being able to put your life uh, into a context where you can operate with joy and with uh, purpose, and, um, and 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 sometimes that uh, that that sense of of concern for me, um, um, like I can't diminish that, right? I don't want to diminish that because then it diminishes the fuel in my tank, right? By the same token, I have to understand that you know. Um, the condition of our world. I mean, it's beyond our borders. When you look at the rest of the world, I mean, the level of poverty and just suffering and affliction is just enormous. Um, but I don't think we can look away from it. I think we have to look at it, and we have to and we have to say, what is our role in this? And uh, it's very easy to say, I 
like, I just don't want to deal with this. I got to move away. Not for, for, for people who aren't in this work. And I, I, I don't think we can do that. But there's no doubt that uh, I just, um, you know, we see the examples. We have a, you know, our, we have local organizations across North America and we see their stories every day and we see the, the work and I'll never, and, you know, I, I was uh, uh, doing a video uh, probably six weeks ago with three of the people who'd come through uh, one of our digital skills programs. And two of them were homeless with children. And in one case, she got a job at Google. In the other case, she got a job at Accenture after like six months, right? Uh, so we, you know, we got them stable with employment. We put them through these classes. We got them coaching support and ultimately they play and they're, they're doing incredibly well. And when you see how close <laughs> somebody who is in a very difficult condition is to something very good. And when you know what that pathway looks like to help them get there, it is, it is painful to know that we're missing so many people. It's painful to know what the possibilities are, but the access or the support or the, or the understanding isn't there or the, the level of services aren't there to, to support those people. And um, we we tell ourselves stories about people who um, we might see in a homeless shelter or people we might see coming out of incarceration or people we might see in poverty. Um, and those narratives are powerful and they're often just wrong and they're often really incomplete. And what we need to do is go into those spaces, look at the truth of what we are seeing in terms of the condition and the influences and how people have been formed in their lives and say, what is it, what is it that will help them move forward? And how can we provide relevant support for a better pathway and a better life? And um, so we not only need to look at it, we need to look at it hard with understanding and commitment. But to your point, we also we has we we, we also gotta, we also gotta, you know live in a way that um, doesn't result in our being, you know, uh, pulled down by that con condition every day because, um, you know, we need, we need fuel to keep the fight up. Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy, Matt at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. Shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. Dot com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L dot com. And now back to our guest. Uh, we do. And it speaks, as you're talking, it, it speaks to me, the power of story, that sort of leaning in that we can't ignore or turn yeah. off the television, that we've, we've got to understand at a granular level the stories that are right in front of our face. I mean, I've had the, the privilege of traveling to Africa now many times, and mm. that will change your life. Yeah. Because there's a different, you know, it's so interesting. I wonder if, if you experienced this, but whenever I've had those, I was just recently at a refugee camp in Northwest Uganda, time, the element of time for those that are suffering or that are needing support that feel lonely is one of those variables that you can't, it, it's hard to quantify, but it feels different. Like the, the clock turns at a different sort of, um, trajectory and speed. And it's that time where we, if you separate it out, that's where potentially the hopelessness comes in or the, the feeling of disengagement. But that feels like if you can understand that you find a common language, even if you're on another continent. I think that's, I think that's a really powerful observation because um, what you're talking about is, 
you know, the fact that people don't see a pathway out of their condition and time is stuck in some ways. Uh, and, and in fact, I just mentioned that video. One of the things uh, one of the women said was when she was homeless with two children, she said, um, I didn't talk, I didn't live, I didn't grow up in a place where people talked about a career path. Uh, and I didn't know where I was going to go. I didn't know where I was going to go. And and so, so she had um, really no visibility into what could be next as she's homeless with her two children. And uh, luckily, in her case, somebody said you you need to go to the Goodwill, uh, and 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 get their support. And she went. We supported her, and you know the the, the rest is history. But um, that kind of place of hopelessness, you know, you know, we can break through into that and help people see that pathway out. And that's that's powerful. That's powerful. And then people can, you know, they need to commit to getting on that path and investing themselves and doing the work to move forward. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, we find more often than not, they are. When did you find your voice professionally? Because I think it's one thing to sort of go along a path similar to yours and to be successful. But then there's something that either happens or you start to build up experiences over time where there's a, a sense or development of agency. And understanding that your voice and your observations can do things to lead groups of people. And yeah. when did you kind of say to yourself, I kind of enjoy leadership, the concept of that, and seeing myself grow through leadership opportunities? Was there a sort of a series of events that happened or yeah. things that you successfully navigated or failed through, right? Because failure yeah. can be incredibly uh, educating. No, there was a very, a very clear transition for me. So I was um I'd grown up as a, an investment banker. I moved into a CFO role at a large corporation. And it was one of those places where, um, and then moved into, you know, other leadership roles. But it was one of those things where, um, you know, uh, there's it's sort of a world of complexity. You're doing all these really interesting, complicated things and making big changes. But, but there's not kind of a broader lead. There's a lot of leadership in it. But there's not as much out front leadership. And as I was, I was being sort of groomed to move into the CFO role. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know, I don't know how to be in that place. Like, I know what that guy needs to do because generally I go into his office three times a week and tell him what I think he needs to do. <laughs> we had a great partnership at the time. Uh, but uh, um, but I don't know that I need know how to be that person. And I went through, I, you know, I went through, um, uh, you know, career coaching. I went to this place called the Center for Creative Leadership, uh, where they do a lot of work with you. They're all kind of CEOs in waiting and generals and people like that. And the career, the coach said to me at that particular time, he said, uh, in the professions I'd been in, you always kind of traded on your brain. At Lehman, if somebody said you're not very smart, that was like the worst thing anybody could say. That <laughs> ethical issues, those were the secondary. <laughs> <Smart. But> that... <laughs> so so uh this guy said, Steve, you think the strongest arrow in your leadership quiver is your brain, and it's not, it's your heart. And if you don't figure that out, you'll never be the leader you can be. That's a powerful course, statement. It was powerful, and I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> like I knew what I felt, and it was really when I went into the government. I I was asked to go to the SBA primarily because of my business and engineering and and financial skills, because um, the SBA provides loans to homeowners and businesses 
who've lost their facilities in a disaster. And it was about 10 months after Katrina and almost nobody had gotten a loan yet because of the just sort of a collapse of the operations. And I realized when I went into that space, it wasn't just about re-engineering the operation and getting, getting money into people's hands. SBA also had the lowest morale of any federal, large federal agency on the best places to work survey. And I realized as I went in, there was a condition of the people in the agency that I needed to address. That condition affected what they were doing externally. I realized that there were hundreds of thousands of people in the Gulf that were relying on us to rebuild their lives. I realized that there were these disputes in Congress and there were all these media issues. And I stepped into a place and I said, I need to own all of that. Like I need to own, and I need to be, I need to, you know, drive this place operationally. I need to engage the team in a bigger vision and get them to work because they were all fighting at that point because of the problems. I need to, I need to provide an inspirational vision externally and can and and tell people we are going to serve them and we are going to get there. And I needed to bring together people from both sides of Congress so they'd stop shooting at us. And it was, it was a place where I said, like, I need a different kind of voice. And and I and it, and it was like, um, I felt like the best I had to give came out of all of me because of the way I was engaged in that job. And um, and it felt great. And it felt like that was who I was. That's who I was called to be in that space. And um, and it was really um, it was it was hard and it was messy. And, you know, I was in the press and you know bad stories that weren't true and all the stuff that you hear about. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it just wasn't that hard to break through it because I knew I was there and I believed in, um, I believed that I needed to be a certain kind of leader and I felt the agency to do it. So it feels like goodwill for you is, was the perfect timing. I mean, based on all of the experiences that you're, you're talking about, I mean, if you had to sort of craft a leader of goodwill and what goodwill can do and the role it plays, you want somebody who can one speak to that individual that is searching for support while also mm -hmm. navigating the variability of <laughs> economies, right? Local economies, the federal government. I mean, there's a lot of messiness there that you seem to understand and you can speak that language, uh, even if it's taxing on your greater health condition <laughs> or anybody <laughs> <laughs> undertaking that. Uh, yeah. Was Goodwill that for you when you started in 2019? Oh my goodness! About an eight, about eighteen months before I got the call from a recruiting firm about Goodwill, I'd written a personal mission statement for myself, and um, the mission statement is almost an exact description of the job I hold today. So I wanted to be in this space. I wanted to be supporting adults uh, uh, in need. I wanted to be doing it through a business model. And when I got the call, it was I, I, I it was almost like I. I I, I just can't believe it. Like, this is what I wrote for myself. Now, uh, the way we go to, the way we, we we serve is we have 155 independent organizations across the continent who go to work in their local markets. And fully in, in, in my role is, in my organization, is to support them as, as powerfully as we can uh, in their work by giving them great tools and education and technology and partnerships. And also my role is to be um, a public voice and to be uh, somebody who can advocate for what we do. And um, so uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's great for me because my, 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 my public experience, my, you know, to some degree, my policy experience, but very much my operational and client experience 
um, has all kind of come, come together to serve a mission that is really what I want to be doing in life. What is it like to feel that you found your your happy place? I feel like that's the pursuit that we all, you know, professionally, where it sort of bleeds over to our personal lives, where you can think back to Appalachia and and your your siblings and just sort of those experiences with really, you know, loving, uh, powerful parents and a parental unit that you're where you are now and you're making a difference, right? You never sort of broke off the rear view mirror. If anything, you put it into focus. Well, it what what it feels like is um, any job has its tough days. This job has a lot of extremely tough days, and so um, it it reminds me uh, that no matter how tough it is, uh, there is a purpose here that we're serving, and it's and it's and it's my purpose, uh, and and I believe that it's my purpose, and it makes it much um, easier for me. Um, to punch through it. And I think as leaders, uh, you know, one of the most um, kind of corrosive things that can happen is um, focusing on ourselves, focusing on kind of our problems or, you know, you know, kind of, you know, living in those places. And I think as a leader, we, we have to look beyond our challenges every day and we have to, and we have to lead people beyond those challenges every day. And, um, so it, it it feels like I need um, I need the energy I need the focus and I need the commitment that no matter what comes, um, if I continue to be the right person for this role, I need to embrace it fully, uh, and and um, and in a way that brings a lot of people along with me. For those that are either watching or listening, what are some good ways to to remind people how they can get involved with their local goodwill? Oh um, well, the most. The, the best ways are to, uh, you know, to donate and to shop. And so, you know, it's, and that's very important because uh, our mission is, 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 is advanced two ways. Number one, we hire a lot of people in the stores that have big challenges in life. And so, you know, a well-functioning store provides us not only to hire those people, but also to provide them with services, whether it's coaching or training. In many cases, we help people, for a period of time and then help them get other jobs outside of Goodwill. The other thing is the profitability from those stores. Much of that profitability goes to fund workforce centers. So not the stores, like these are job centers where you can go in and get, you know, a career coach and resume writing and, you know, digital skills and all sorts of things. So being a donor and a shopper has a massive impact on your community, specifically on your community, because that's where the impact is. Um, the other thing is, if you're an employer uh, or you're somebody who you know makes hiring decisions, you should contact your local Goodwill to see what programs they have, you know, uh, what people they serve, and hopefully become an employer for people in your community who may have challenges with employment. Because I always tell people the next great hire might be somebody you never expected, and it happens to be Second Chance Month. Uh, April. And I'll tell you more and more research is showing that just as one example, employers that hire people who've um, come out of incarceration by a significant degree say that those people are as good or better employees than the rest of their team. Um, and they attach well to the workplace. Attrition is lower. Um, they they really value the job. And um, and thankfully, many corporations are now uh, working hard to bring in people 
that are different from the people they've employed historically. So, the, you know, that's a very important way that people can become involved is, is, is part of the hiring process and, and um, opportunity process. Well, I love that you, you, you talked about not just donation, but obviously going in and and purchasing and engaging with the local stores in that way. And then the employer component, because I think that people will think they know Goodwill's there, they donate, but there are other things that we can do to participate, to engage our yeah. children, to, to provide support, our local small businesses. Um, what a what a pleasure uh, it has been to spend some time with you, Steve. You, you represent what I think we would like in all of our leaders. Uh, there's a compassion, there's a transparency. Uh, I think there's a willingness to have conversations with people where you aren't, you aren't perfect. I get that sense that you, no, you I want you to be my neighbor. I'd want you to be my neighbor <laughs> and a collaborator, uh, at the, in the same, in the same vein. Um, I like spending more time with good people than less. And I put yeah. you in that bucket. We want to thank Steve Preston. He's the president and CEO of Goodwill Industries International. You obviously you can go to goodwill.org to learn more. I am your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom.